0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to take them in turn, uh, as John mentioned in his prayer and as is in your bulletin, to the book of the prophet Micah. We're in a series that we've uh, titled the book of the 12 as we go through what is uh, familiarly known as the 12 minor prophets. And remember that the word minor does not mean they're unimportant or they're insignificant. Uh, But it's a way of designating the shorter books of the prophets as opposed to the larger ones. We're doing one message on each of the minor prophets. Today we land in the book of Micah. Now, with seven chapters, we're not going to take time, obviously, to, to read all of it. But again, I encourage you that as we, you, you kind of know what's coming up, I encourage you to be reading through these prophetical books as we, as we come upon them. Uh, next week, Nahum is only three chapters, so some shorter chapters. But we've got some bigger books coming up uh, you know, as we hit the tail end. So keep reading ahead. Keep immersing yourself in these books um, as we gather together. And then, uh, and then that'll, I think that will be much more beneficial uh, to you. John Piper has, uh, has said, he said, we will go wrong on all the big questions unless we know the book and the God of the book. And uh, just, just the other day, I, I, got, a, I got a message um, from a, a very close family member of mine who, uh, who's working through their own spirituality, things like this, and, and this person in my family asked me if I believed that God was coming soon. And among many things that were asked and ways I would respond, I said, when I think about the coming of God, I said, I hope God is coming soon for my sake, but I hope he's not for the sake of those who won't be going to heaven. The coming of the Lord is what motivated the prophet Micah which is why he would say in, in Micah chapter 3 verse 8 he says he says but as for me and we get a lot of words from Micah in this he says but as for me i am filled with power with the spirit of the lord and with justice and might to declare to jacob his transgression and to israel his sin now why did he talk about sin i think it's because it's by realizing the depth of our sin that we come to understand how faithful and loving God really is. Now back to the big question. Do you think God is coming soon? That's a big question. And I would say it's probably one of the biggest questions. Now what are some other big questions that we should all have settled in our mind? Questions like, uh, where do we come from? Why are we here? Where, where is history moving? What happens after death? And of course, there's the, the, the big, the real big questions of, is there a God? And if there is a God, what is he like and what does he expect? Just like was mentioned in the prayer. Who is this God? What does he expect? And what is he doing? Big answers, big questions, with big answers, with big consequences, so where do you stand on those big questions? In the book of Micah, as in the other prophets, Israel went wrong on many of the big questions. And even though they believed in one God and they even claimed as Jehovah as their God, they really got them distorted and they got it all mixed up. And they didn't truly know the God of Israel. And so Micah is a book about who God is and what God is doing what he's going to do, and what he expects of us. And now, so the book of Micah gives us a compilation. If you want to know how to divide the book up, it's three different sermons that Micah preached. Don't worry, I'm only preaching one this morning, but Micah gives us three. One starts in chapter 1, where verse 2 says, Hear, you peoples. The next sermon starts in chapter 3, where he says, Hear, you heads of Jacob. And the final sermon starts in chapter 6, where he says, Hear what the Lord says. Those are those are three beginnings to his three different sermons that were collected to make up this book of Micah. And as we uh, as we jump in here, I I'm hoping that by the end of this message, the book of Micah will help us understand who God is. And as a result, help us understand that because of who God is, we need to welcome God's truth into our life, we need to surrender to his plans, and we need to center our lives on him. And we'll talk about all those as we work our way through. So this morning we're going to look at three assertions about the character of God and how we should respond. Three assertions about the character of God and how we should respond. And they're all divided. The three of them all come from the three different sermons that we have here in the book of Micah. Number one is that God hates transgressions. What's the response? So I will welcome his truth into my life. The assertion about the character of God, God hates transgression. My response? So I will welcome his truth into my life. Now let's break that up. Chapter 1 is about God hating transgression. Chapter 2 of this sermon is about welcoming his truth into our lives. Chapter 1, God hates transgression. Transgression leads to judgment. That's kind of what Micah starts here. Now, have you ever ever experienced something where someone comes up to you, and uh, maybe it's a good situation, maybe a not so good situation, or a a lighthearted situation, but someone comes to you and says, I have good news and I have bad news. Which one do you want first? How many of you want the bad news first? About half. Okay, I was surprised. Well, Micah, he doesn't ask. He just goes straight for the bad news. He just jumps straight in and says, I'm going to give you the bad news about all this. And it's in verse 2 of chapter 1 where he says, "Hear you, peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Now notice verse 3. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains are going to melt. The valleys are going to split open like wax before fire, like waters poured down on a steep place. All this, verse 5, for the transgression of Jacob. Transgression leads to judgment. God was coming. Now, for the people of Israel, that normally would have been good news. Normally would have been good news. They couldn't wait for God to come to the earth and wipe out all their enemies. And so at first when they heard this, they would have been filled with joy and eagerness to see the, to see, you know, we read it in verse 3 and 4 about the kind of the chaos that comes with God coming to the earth. And so they would have applauded, yeah, we're ready for the the chaos that God brings on those Gentile nations. The problem was, as we read, God was coming in judgment against them because of their transgressions. And it would come by the way of the Assyrian and eventually the Babylonian empires who would come and destroy them. They were eager, they were ready to go, God is coming, that's good news, not realizing that God was coming in judgment against them. And if you are eager to see God come, if you are eager for the return of Jesus Christ, if you are eager for the return of God to claim this earth and this world, you ought to stop and ask yourself a question. And that question is, when God comes to this earth, will he be coming in judgment against me, in my sin, in my transgressions? Now the word transgression means to trespass. It means to violate a covenant or break a command, and it's something we're all guilty of. And so we must ask ourselves, if God hates transgression... And I'm a transgressor, and God's judgment comes on those who have committed this transgression. What does that mean for me? And the Israelites, they were, they were blind to what was coming. Their idolatry, Nosa says he was going to tread down the high, the high places. Their idolatry was going to cause them to fall into judgment. And their idolatry was going to bring them down. Now what happened? How did Israel get to this? The answer is in verse 7. Again, we already mentioned, it. all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay to waste. And then we get this kind of, kind of hard to understand phrase where he says, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. What is he saying here? What happened? Is that they bought into and they discovered worldly satisfaction. They were willing to spend money on pretty much anything that they thought would bring them satisfaction in return. That's what idolatry is. Willing to invest whatever we can into whatever we believe will give us satisfaction apart from God. They thought, like it says, for, the, for from the fee of a prostitute. They thought they were investing They thought by doing all these idolatrous things, they were were investing in their future. They were were setting themselves up to live a life of satisfaction and happiness and joy and delight. They thought they were investing in things that could profit them, but they failed to realize. like, Like a verse we heard in the baptism just recently, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Now all people are blind to this. Before conversion, because we all believe that the wages of sin is satisfaction. We believe that the payment that sin gives us is happiness. We believe that the wages sin brings is, is joy, and peace, and health, and life. Practically speaking, no one ever commits adultery unless they believe that the end result will be life, and joy, and happiness. And we fail to realize that with sin comes death. And that's what Micah's trying to get them to see. And notice Micah's personal response in verse 8. Again, we get, a, we get another personal response from him. For he says, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked, a picture of, of mourning. I'm going to make a lamentation like the sound of a jackal. I'm going to mourn like, like the screech of an ostrich. For her wound is incurable and has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. He was ministering through tears. And this is the same thing, if you remember Paul in, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul had this exact same sort of mentality when he, when he saw the destruction of the wickedness coming. Where he said, for many of whom I have often told you and tell you now, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. And here's the exact same thing the Israelites were doing. Their minds were set on earthly things. Tears from Micah. Tears from Paul. Any tears from us? So he says, judgment is coming. Transgression leads to judgment. Judgment. The second part of this is, is God hates transgression. That's chapter one. But he says, so I will welcome his truth into my life. That's chapter two. Because just as transgression leads to judgment, theology leads to practice. So A.W. Tozer, maybe you're familiar with the famous saying, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, why did, why did he say that? It's, it's because when... Whatever you believe about God determines how you live. You may not believe God exists. You may not believe there is a God. But whatever you believe about God will determine how you live your life. And the main sin in Israel's, uh, especially amongst Israel's rich and powerful leaders, was oppression. Look at chapter 2. Where God says, Woe to those who devise wickedness. Chapter 2, verse 2, They covet fields and they seize them. Uh, uh, verse 2 says they oppress a man in his house it was oppression they abused their power they stole land and livelihood from farmers, these rich rulers they were arrogant and later in chapter 2 if you look at verse 8 they, just, they were just always looking for a fight it says but lately my people have risen up as enemies you strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war or no thought of conflict. The idea is here that these rulers, these, these people of influence and power and money, they were just going around in a, and just imagine just walking down the road, just not having any care in your mind, just enjoying the day, not having any thought of wanting to get in a fight or have a conflict, and these people were just going after them. and they created a society. As it says in verse 9, it says, The women of my people, you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children, you take away my splendor forever. They created a society in which they removed all sorts of security. Every sense of security. A society in which the places that should have been havens of refuge for the oppressed were turned into places of bribes and fear-mongering. And that's that's the kind of society that the people of Israel were were living in. Now, what's worse than that is that not only that, but the prophets jumped in on it too. So if you look at verse 5 and 6, or mainly 6, where here's here's what they say. They say, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. So the prophets are jumping in. And Micah here is saying, he's saying, he's saying, he's saying all these things like, but but what's what's going on? Why why are you telling me not to preach? He says in verse seven, should this be said? So the leaders, the spiritual leaders, everybody was jumping in on this whole thing about making money, getting rich, and wielding their power for their own advantages. And he even calls out the false prophets here. Now, in the Bible, there's, there's, there's many ways to distinguish a false prophet from a true prophet. But certainly a couple of, uh, a couple of things here is that, is that a true prophet of God insisted on loyalty to the Lord. And another thing is that the true prophet of God, their prophecies actually came true. But notice the false prophet in verse 11. This is so key to even understanding false preachers of today. If a man should go about, this is a prophet, so Micah is saying, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. They're only concerned about telling people what they want to hear. Their message centered on worldly pleasures, their message centered on fulfilling the fantasies of the people. And perhaps you're here and you're a lot like the Israelites. You want to hear message messages, you want to hear, you want to hear stories or whatever that will feed your fantasies. Those types of messages that just feed your fantasies and feed your worldly desires have no veracity. And people are drawn to them. He says, those are the kind of preachers this this people wants. And the people are drawn to them because they feel good. They sound good. They promise my best life now, so I want to be all in. Now I can promise you a couple things as your pastor. Number one, I can promise you that I probably won't be the wittiest, the funniest, the smartest, or the most skilled preacher you will ever hear. But before God and by His grace, I'll never resort to preaching to your fantasies and pleasures. But will always show you God's reality through God's Word. And if I ever stop doing that, you fire me. Christians, maybe, maybe you're here, and, and maybe you don't even know that Christians. Do you know that we can take a hold of these same sorts of deviant desires even when we come to our Bible reading? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, "Man, I've read my Bible, but I just I get nothing. I get nothing." Could be a number of reasons for that. But I want you to consider one thing. Could it be that we leave our time with God with nothing because the something that we're looking for, is not something God offers in his word. And we go to God's word and we say, and we, we come with a problem, or we come, with, we come with a hardship, we come with a want and a desire from God about how we feel or what we want him to say, and we come to the Bible already ready. Hey God, here's what I want you to say. And we get there and we don't find it. And we say, well, I guess, I guess there's nothing for me. I guess, I'm, I, guess, I guess I'm not a good Christian or whatever it might be. Now this is why I say we need to welcome God's truth into our lives. God hates transgression, so what we do, we don't want to go, we don't want to go find preachers that are going to preach to our fantasies, or to our own worldly pleasures. We want to welcome God's truth into our lives. And it's because theology leads to practice. Whether your theology is accurate, confused, or just flat out wrong, whatever you believe about God will determine how you live. Let's look at number two, the second assertion and resolution, if you will. In chapters three through five, this sermon is that God promises restoration, so I will surrender to his plan. God hates transgression in that first sermon, so I will welcome his word, his truth into my life. Number two, God promises restoration, so I will surrender to his plan. Now, chapter three is the, uh, all about the failed leadership of man. And we won't spend too much time here. But he kind of starts out in chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, hear this, O rulers. So he's talking to the leaders of the house of Israel. And he says, aren't you supposed to be the ones that know justice? Aren't you, the question means, aren't you supposed to be the ones that exemplify godliness? And they were abusing their power. God likens them in verse 2 and 3 like, like people who tear skin off the people. They take their flesh from their bones and they eat the flesh of my people. They flay their skin off them. They break their bones in pieces. They chop them up like meat and then they throw them in the cauldron. Kind of the idea of a butcher butchering an animal. He says these leaders who abuse their power are just like that. And what the church and the home needs today are men and women who exemplify godliness. But men, I will say, God places most of the weight on us. Because prideful leaders and prideful men will naturally tend towards tearing into, tearing up, and tearing apart those they are leading. In verse 5, again, we're not going to take too much time, but the prophets jumped in too. Then he says, well, hey, about you prophets, you spiritual leaders, quote-unquote, you're leading my people astray. As long as they are well-paid, well-fed, and well-off, they would do anything for acceptance, which is another downfall of a leader. Any leader who would just do anything for acceptance is going to damage and hurt the people. The people will suffer. Whenever those who are called to be leaders, spiritual leaders, are no longer examples of grace and humility and kindness and love and biblical conviction and holiness. The people will suffer. Whenever decisions are made, where it's just based on what will bring acceptance or profit, the people will suffer. But the day is coming when everybody's going to see the sham, and that's how chapter 3 ends in verse 12. He says, Zion's going to be a plowed field. You're going to be a heap of ruins. Everybody's going to see it. And in chapter 4 and 5 is where Micah now starts moving towards, okay, kind of got that all the way. Now I want you to see what God is going to do. God's going to bring restoration. And he starts in chapter 4 with the future kingdom of God. Notice notice what it says here in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. He says, in the later days, in the latter days, Here's what's going to happen. The, the mountain of the Lord is going to be established as the highest of mountains. At the end of verse 1, the peoples are going to flow to it. Verse 2, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. In the later, latter days, there will be a worldwide spiritual change. Now, this is still future to us because we can't say that. Right? America, the leaders of America are not getting together with the leaders of China and of Russia and of Cuba and saying together, hey, hey, what are you doing Friday? Let's go to Jerusalem and let's worship and delight in God. That's not happening today, but it will happen one day. Imagine that. One day, America, Russia, China, Cuba, everybody, they're going to get together on a phone call and instead of trying to make treaties and have arguments and discussion, they're going to say, hey, let's go worship God. Hard to believe, isn't it? And this will happen when Jesus returns and he rules the restored Israel. Again, still in our future, the day is coming. There's going to spring up in the heart of these redeemed nations a desire to go and worship God because they delight in him. And look at what the universe three. There's a lot to say here, but it says, it says they're not, nation's not gonna lift up the universe three, nation shall not lift up sword against nation. And notice here, neither shall they learn war anymore. The 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 2021 budget for the US Pentagon's research and testing lab for 2021 is 112 billion dollars. Now there's coming a time when Jesus rules. Where well, they're not going to need that. We're not going to need our guns, our security cameras, our locks, our safes, whatever. Verse four, it's like every man's going to sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one's going to make them afraid. We just talked about a whole society in which fear is everywhere. You don't know where you're going to go, where you might get it stuck to you. But here he's saying, you're not going to be afraid of harm, you're going to be treated fairly, you're not going to be afraid of being robbed. Now, in verse 9 through the end of the chapter, Micah returns to sort of the grim reality of the immediate future. Where he talks about Babylon coming. That's in verse 10. He's like, you guys are going to Babylon. But the reason is, it's almost like he wants to say, don't you realize how far you are from where you should be? It's like, the nation... if. The best the nations of this world can be are still light years away from where Jesus is going to bring this world. So we we say we need to surrender to his plans. That's God's plan. That's God's plan. All nations together worshiping the Lord. So let's bring that to a personal level. Whatever plans you have for your home or whatever plans you have for this church, shoot for the kingdom of God. Shoot for the kingdom of God. We won't hit it. And we will fail, sometimes miserably. But until Jesus returns and sets up his actual kingdom, everything we should do, everything we do should say, I'm shooting for the kingdom of God here. And all this is going to happen, chapter 5, through a ruler that God has decided to bring. A judge that's going to make all this happen. Verse 2 of chapter 5. See if these words sound familiar. But you... O Bethlehem Ephrathah who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old from ancient of days A ruler is going to be born in the small town of Bethlehem now, think of what God has just been saying. God has just been talking about Babylon, Assyria, exiles, worldwide dominion, worldwide spiritual change, big time stuff. And then he goes, oh, hey, Babylon, or hey, Bethlehem. Like, me? Like, yeah, you. From you's coming a ruler. Notice it says it's too, it's too insignificant to be listed among the clans. In Joshua 15 and Nehemiah chapter 11, it's not even mentioned as a down. It's so insignificant, so obscure that it's not even acknowledged. And from there comes a ruler who's none other than Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 2, verses 4-6 through six, tells us about Jesus being the one who fulfilled this prophecy. He's the ruler from God. He's the ancient of days. He has no beginning. He'll have no end. And he would come in time through the virgin birth, but he is not bound by time. There's going to be abundant grace, and all this at the end of chapter 5 is all so that the Lord would be acknowledged as being supreme. I know we're running through this book at light speed, but I wonder what you think about the plan of God I wonder what you think about the timing of it all and what God's plan is. Maybe you don't believe it. Maybe you say there's no way all this, whatever you're talking about in the future, there's no way it's happening. Well, you should know that many of God's prophecies have already been fulfilled, including this prophecy written some 700 years before Jesus ever stepped foot in this earth. It was fulfilled. Many others have been fulfilled, which means that the prophecies that we just talked about that are yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. If you've, uh, if you've if you've if uh, you've known anything, you know that the the Olympics are going on, and if you uh, I don't know if you caught the opening ceremonies, but one of the, one of the things that happened at the opening ceremonies was that uh, the, the the Japanese uh, they're hosting it they put together a a drone show I guess you would call it they they took one thousand eight hundred drones and in the sky they created out of these drones with lights on uh, a full size globe. Of the world. Had the countries. You could see all these things. All just 1,800 drones. All perfectly placed. All perfectly spaced out. In its exact spot to create a life. A huge lifelike globe. And that's what God is doing. That's what God is doing. Except he's doing it with about 10 billion different things. God is taking each piece of your life. And of his plan. And he's putting them in the exact Right place so that we, so that he can complete the big picture. And it'll be complete when Jesus returns and wickedness is gone. That's God's plan. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with that being God's plan? Is it okay if some things don't go according to your plan? But we can have confidence in knowing that everything goes according to his plan. We have to ask ourselves, if this is God's plan, then what am I doing now that reflects that I'm really surrendered to his plan? We can look and say, how many, how many, how many things have I done in just this past week that won't matter at all when Jesus returns? It won't matter at all when the big picture is finally seen. How many times have we skipped out on Bible reading or family devotions or sharing Christ or investing in eternity because we were, uh, we were too tired from work or we're too tired from a day with the kids or we're too tired from our hobbies? A life surrendered to God's plan will affect how we live now. But there's a third one. That we want to jump to in chapters 6 and 7. The third affirmation of God's character and our response, number three, God offers salvation, so I will center my life on him. I'm going to welcome his word into my life. I'm going to, I'm I'm not only going to welcome his word into my life, I'm going to surrender to his plan and say, God, whatever you want me to do, I'm going to shoot for the kingdom of God, and then I'm going to center my life on him. And he has two questions here, and I think maybe two questions that, You have asked, or maybe you should. And the first one comes from chapter 6, verse 6. The first question is, what does God want from me? Have you ever asked yourself that, or asked the Lord that? God, what do you want from me? The first part of chapter 6, before we get to that question, we need a little bit of background of how they landed at that question. Because God kind of says to them, he says, hey, uh, in verse 2, hey, you my people, how have I wearied you? What have I done to you to cause you to be weary, to be faithless? And that's what God does in verses 3 through 5. He kind of he reminds them of who he is and what he's done for them. And God even invites them, hey, give me, a le- if you have a legitimate complaint against who I am and what I've done for you, bring it up. And God's, God's accusing them of faithlessness, but his mercy continued the whole way. And God wants them to remember. That's what verse 5, he says, oh my people, remember. And he goes through many ways, his mercy has been seen. And it's because mercy brings trust. And here's the principle from this passage, is that, that the, the more mercies you recall, the more your dependence on God will grow. The more mercies you recall, the more your dependence on God will grow. Past wonders bring present worship. Now, here's what happens. The Israelites were a little bit convicted by this. They said, oh yeah, what has God done that I should weary him? So they're, they're a little bit convicted. And so they ask the question, okay, we are a little bit guilty. I do feel a little bit bad here for how I've been acting towards God and my faithlessness. And so they, they start asking this question. And it's important to note that their conviction stopped before it hit full surrender and submission. And so the Israelites asked what they should do. What will work? And so they said, how about I buy my, uh, bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? You know, give him gifts. Maybe if I give God gifts. Well, if gifts don't work, how about, Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? What about quantity? What if I give him more and more? What if I just try to give him as much as I possibly can? What if I give him everything? Okay, if that won't work, well, what about the cost? Where they say in verse 7, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Do you realize what they just said? Should I sacrifice my child? Should I kill my own kid? Is that what will please the Lord? What's God looking for? What does God want? They were willing to give up everything, everything, except for what God wanted their hearts. Verse 8, he has told you, oh man, what what is good? What's the Lord require of you? Do justice, what you're not doing. Love kindness or steadfast love. Walk humbly with your God. Intimate fellowship with God. That's what he wanted. They wanted to stay in the center. They were trying to figure out how can I stay in the center of my life and just throw things at God to make sure he stays on the out. And maybe that describes some of you. You're willing to try to treat your spouse a little nicer. You're willing to try to quit cussing as much. You're willing to try to be at church a little bit more. You're willing to do all these things. You're willing to try to do whatever you can or do anything you can to pay off God as long as he stays out of the center. But God wants none of it. The only thing God wants from you is your heart. What does that mean? In other words, he wants your trust. He wants your dependence. He wants your faith on him and him alone for everything. Do you realize how, how, like God has way simplified this for us. God has way lightened the load for us. Do you not see that? God has given us way better weapons to fight our sin. God is saying, put your religiosity, put it away. Don't try to earn forgiveness. It's not going to work. Forgiveness was already purchased by my son. That's what God is saying to you. Put your religious checkbook away where you write out different checks for God based on what you're doing or the religious things you do or the way you're trying to pay God off. He says, put it away. Forgiveness was purchased by my son Jesus who died on the cross for sinners. This is the amazing part about God. Because we're all born with a checkbook. And we're all born with that religious checkbook where we pull it out every now and then and try to pay God off. And even if you're a Christian, you might be in here and you're, just, you're frustrated. And you keep asking, man, what does God want from me? I feel so miserable as a Christian. I'm going to church. I'm trying to read my Bible. I'm trying to pray. What does God want? He just wants you to stop and put away, put away your religious checkbook. And enjoy the blessings of Jesus Christ. That whenever we feel conviction or guilt, we must run to Christ, not without the checkbook. And that's what leads to the final few verses of this book. Chapter 7. And we're only going to look here at the, the end of the chapter here because, again, he goes through the, the, the same sort of scene in chapter 7. He kind of recalls what the leaders are doing and what the prophets are doing. Everyone is suspicious of one another. The, the prophet keeps his faith in the Lord. And then there are promises of restoration of Israel and confidence in the Lord. And all the nations are going to be silent. That's verse 16 and 17. So notice there the, the nations, they're going to come crawling out of the earth, they're going to come trembling. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. So he kind of ends with that, and then he turns to this question, and this is the second question. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? And he stresses, notice here, who is a God like you? hardening iniquity and passing over transgression it's the same same concept in psalm 103 verse 11 and 12 you remember the passage don't you it says for as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him as far as the east is from the west so far does he remove our transgressions from us it's an incomparable forgiveness for incomparable sinners incomparable grace He throws our sins, verse 19, as we close this out. He throws our sins. He says, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The depths of the sea. Inaccessible, non-returnable, gone forever. So God takes the sin, past, present, future, of all those who believe on Christ He holds them in his hands, and then he says, see ya, and he throws them over his shoulder, never to be seen again. And then he looks at that sinner who just confessed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, I'm going to give you his righteousness. You're not righteous in and of yourself, I just held a bunch of your sins, but I will give you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be saved, that's what it means to be born again. There's not a single sin that you can commit, whether you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian and you know Jesus, there's not a single sin that you could ever commit where God grabs it and says, hmm, this one's going to need a little bit more attention from me later on, and puts it in his pocket. He's not going to keep any of those sins close by, they're all gone. Whatever sin you committed last night, it's gone. The consequence and effects of it may still be there, but your sin, before God, it's gone. Whatever you did last year, it's gone. If you're in Christ, whatever you did, when you were 18 years old, it's gone. Whatever you do tomorrow, if you're in Jesus Christ, it's gone. And our lives as Christians get chaotic when we center our life on anything else. If center stage in our lives is us or power or money or influence or food or comfort or sex or anything else, our lives are going to be miserable. Gone forever. Who is a God like you? So where are you at on the big questions of who God is and what he expects? If you're not a Christian, God is willing to take all your sins, past, present, and future, and throw them into the sea. Never to be brought up against you. Never. There's therefore now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But until you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God remains on you that's why god invites you to this incomparable forgiveness come to me put your religious checkbook away and come to me christian god hates transgression so we must welcome his truth into our lives he promises restoration so we must surrender to his plans and he offers us salvation and if we have received that salvation we must center our lives on him who is like our god Let's pray. Lord, a quick glance through this book. But Lord, I'm praying it's a clear glance of who you are. Who is like the Lord our God. Thank you for forgiving us. May we in turn center our lives on who you are. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.